0: Hello and welcome back to the podcast. It is always up to speed with Formula One. Mark and Mark Daly and Hamilton back to talk about our favorite uh, obsession. I'm not going to say sport. I'm going to say obsession. I'm just going to be straight up and honest about it. But hey, how's it going? You got a big smile on your face. The weather is nice. Spring has finally sprung here on the West Coast. And well, we, we shouldn't get too excited. I noticed in the, the the forecast this afternoon that the rain is coming and you can always count on the Pacific Northwest to do what it does best. And that is rain at some point. But the past 10 days have been absolutely Awesome, and I'm not really ready to hunker down and stay inside for the next uh, week, but that's, that's what it's looking like. But hey, that's what we do here, and we complain about the weather, so by by virtue, you are an all-now honorary Vancouverite, so feel free to join in or shake your heads at uh, at my whining. But it's all good. It's all good. We're, we're not going to whine about anything Formula One, because Mark, there's been some pretty interesting stories uh, floating around uh, this week. Uh, there's been some interesting sort of, uh, I guess, fallout, if you want to call it that, from last weekend's uh, Grand Prix at Imola, of course, the big story that's still going around is the the aftermath of the the, the Russell and Bottas accident. And then there was an interesting uh, story about uh, Kimi Raikkonen in that uh, that that penalty that he got uh, at at the end of the race, because um, b- basically we can sum it up. We'll go into it in a, in a little bit of detail. Was uh, when we had that rolling start again, and he went off, and he you know he was supposed to rejoin. He, he was a little bit unclear as how what uh, what they were supposed to do, and they they radioed. Uh, the race director they didn't get back in time and they said okay the rules are unclear but hey you still got to serve the penalty (laughs) you know it's just like it was a couple of weeks ago we were complaining about how infuriating it was to see the lack of enforcement for track limits in Bahrain and this weekend uh, (laughs) you get an equally bizarre situation so they're being consistently inconsistent but um, that's that that is what it is but how are you doing my friend?
1: I appreciate you asking, and it's funny you were talking about the weather. We don't typically have hot uh, spells during April here in Vancouver, British Columbia, but last weekend it was touching on the high 20s, uh, close to 30. So I got to spend uh, Saturday at the beach, and I got a brutal, brutal tan. And it's kind of funny, too, to go to the beach when the trees themselves haven't even Blossomed or bloomed like the leaves were out. It was kind of a surreal experience, but yeah, we had an awesome weekend in the sun. It was super nice. To your point, it's probably going to be wet for the next ten days. Um, I got my vaccine this week, my first shot, so I'm super excited about that. And I also had a really interesting experience at work that that I kind of want to share. But I was on a conference call a couple of days ago, as as we're apt to do in this new world of work from home and uh, digital immersion with your coworkers. But we had a call, and at the beginning of the call, a director that was on the call. Knowing that I was on the call actually made reference to last weekend's race, and he's oh, like, cool. "It was a great race," and he was talking about the race, and then somebody else chimed in and commented on the race, and then a senior VP, a vice president of the company, was also on the call, and he chimed in about the race and was speaking about Verstappen and actually pronounced his name better than I typically do. So it was just this—it was this surreal experience of being on a conference call in Canada, and I wasn't the one driving the conversation about the last race. It was—it was—it was really. Interesting, and it also just speaks to how rapidly the sport's growing. And I mm-hmm. think the acknowledgement from the the bulk of the folks on this call was that their initial immersion of the sport was Netflix' drive to survive and yeah. and that's kind of what they referenced as kind of their gateway into the sport so as much as we talk about it with our fans and so many of the people that listen to the show that they've kind of entered the world of formula 1 through that as a gateway um it's very much the the truth and and i see it in my workplace all the time but i thought that was really really interesting and and i got excited not just because i have more people to talk about formula 1 with at work but it just speaks to how rapidly the fan base for the sport is is growing currently which yeah, i think is very very cool
0: it's really cool. I've had a couple of friends too that have uh, been messaging me uh, recently and saying you know uh, DTS, watch or don't watch is it worth it? I'm like absolutely right now and they're like well which season should I start with I've never watched Formula 1 before. I said well seriously start with season one I mean you can watch any season uh, apart but you know if you really want to get the full experience watch all three seasons and and tell me what you think but it is really kind of cool like you say I mean for years I felt like after a big race I'm sort of like bursting and ready to talk about it with people and then there's been very few people in my circle that I knew of that were Formula One fans – but slowly, but surely, like you say, it, it is, well, actually more than slowly now. I mean, especially this year, what with people staying home more and 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 digesting and consuming digital media a lot more, that uh, this DTS has really sprung out as one of the standouts. Last year, it was Tiger King. I, I guess this year, it's Drive to Survive. So I know which one uh, I'm going to put down as my favorite and uh, shouldn't come as any surprise, of course. But it, it, it's it's interesting because I felt like for, for the longest time, I felt like the sole member of what could be like this really awesome tribe of formula one fans around the world. And, and all of a sudden people that, that I know that you know, I'm, I'm, I'm fairly close with or good friends with, or even colleagues or, uh, you know, some people in my professional circle, just like yourself, that uh, they're, they're starting to talk about formula one. I'm like, guys, where have you been all these years? Finally, welcome. Come on, sit down. Let's talk. There's a lot to talk about. So, so it's cool. It, it's really awesome to be able to, to, to share the, the, the passion and all the, the cool stuff about uh, formula so- one.
1: The one thing I would add as well, and I agree with everything you're saying, I think the one thing that Drive to Survive does well above everything else is mm-hmm. it helps new fans connect with the personalities of the sport. And I think if you're not familiar with F1 and you look at it from a distance, it's just a bunch of noisy cars with European drivers and it's mm-hmm. really hard to connect. And that's the perception, right? But I think one of the things that Drive to Survive does so well is it brings you into the paddock and you get to know the drivers, you get to know the team principal. Mm -hmm. and because the sport's so well endowed right now with these charismatic really personable drivers it it kind of sucks you in and then you tune in every week not because you're looking to see that silver mercedes or you're looking to see that that orange mclaren but you're looking to see what daniel ricardo does and you know daniel ricardo because you saw him in an episode where he was on his family farm back in australia i think that's what it does really well it helps it helps uh, introduce you to the personality of these drivers, and I think that's where that connection, that human connection, is is starting. So, yeah, super excited. and I know we got a ton of stuff to get to. So we can probably move on from the drive to survive <laughs> banter.
0: Well, it's, it's sort of uh, related. I mean, it's, a I wouldn't say, a direct uh, result of uh, the, the, the Gen DTS or the Drive to Survive uh, phenomena. But I mean, this is a story that's been uh, developing for a long time. And so w- I, we talked about it uh, briefly last week on the show that uh, Miami is going to be uh, joining the calendar for 2022, which is awesome. It's going to be uh, slated in uh, Q2 of uh, of next year. So obviously, we're, we're thinking, uh, we were talking about a little bit earlier off air, Mark, that uh, we're, we're thinking that we're going to be seeing a montreal miami back-to-back uh, schedule or, or portion to the schedule, which I, I think is awesome because, you know, you're going to get those first uh, several races in Europe instead of just coming over to Montreal for that one date at the beginning of uh, June. My guess is that they're going to go from Montreal to Miami or vice versa. And I think it's awesome then back to Europe for the bulk of the or the, the remainder of the European season in the summer break. I'm really excited about it. I, I think it's uh, really good. I mean, I know that there's been some local opposition, which, you know, isn't ideal, but but uh, you know, compared to some of the races in other countries that you know we're, we're not really excited about, for obvious you know the the sports washing right. This is in comparison something that you can you can get more excited about because you know, the the issues that are facing it are a lot less major when it comes to you know serious issues like human
1: rights. Right, I, and I've said this before on the show. I, I think one of the things that I'm most interested in when it comes to Formula One is the business side of the sport mm-hmm. and. Miami has always been a target destination for Liberty. So Liberty is effectively the principal... Financial backer of the sport. Liberty Media came in, they bought Formula One, it was probably four, or five years ago. Was it late 2016 at this it's stage? It's about time, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, late 2016, early 2017. So they basically bought the sport. And, and it wasn't clear initially what their intentions were. Were they going to shine it up, invest in it a little bit, and spin it off? Was it a long term investment? Regardless, I think Liberty had always identified that the biggest growth opportunity for the sport is the United States. This is a sport that is very, very heavy on their European presence, largely because that's kind of the birthplace of the sport. Mm -hmm. But I think from Liberty's perspective, look, if we're going to grow and continue to monetize this sport, we've got this country of 360 million people with a single race. Yet in Europe, we have a calendar of 12, 15 races. Mm -hmm. So it was always very clear that from Liberty's perspective, They wanted to grow the sport of the United States. What we do know about Miami is that they will not be paying any hosting fees to the Formula One group. This is is a freebie. And from from Liberty's perspective, that's okay because it's going to help provide additional exposure in the United States. And ultimately, exposure translates into a couple of things. One, it helps them crack the U.S. sponsorship market. So if you look at the principal sponsors in Formula One at the team level, at at the kind of formula one level. Most of them aren't typically American corporations. They're typically European or Asian corporations. So as long as you continue to build your footprint in the US, you can potentially penetrate some of those corporate sponsorships. The other thing it allows you to do is really crack open the opportunities that exist from a TV revenue perspective. So right now, they've got to deal with ESPN. It doesn't pay them a lot of money and a big chunk of that's because historically, the ratings are really low. So the hope from Liberty's perspective is, look, we continue to build on the success at Coda and Austin. We put a race in Miami. Potentially, we put a third race in this country. We continue to increase the exposure. We continue to increase those ratings. And then we can go back to ESPN slash ABC or we can go to NBC or we can go to Fox and we can really go in with some leverage and negotiate a bigger TV deal. So this is all about growing and continuing to monetize the sport. But at the same time, on the one hand, I want to be critical of this event, right? Let's for all intents and purposes, it's a race in a parking lot at a football stadium, (laughs) 20 minutes north of downtown Miami. Like if you want to super, super simplify it, there's no elevation gains. It's going to be relatively tight. There isn't going to be a ton of passing zones, but I'm going to put this back to a comment that I saw on Reddit the other day where everyone was just Dumping all over this race. It's terrible. It's a parking lot. It's not a traditional track. Blah, 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 blah. And somebody had made this comment that really resonated with me. It's like, you know what, guys? You're allowed to have fun. As a Formula One fan, you're allowed to have fun every now and then. And Miami, at the very worst, is just going to be a fun event. So I, I kind of came around on it and I'm kind of excited to see what this 19 corner, five kilometer track is ultimately gonna look like. But yeah, to your point, um, uh, we don't have to wait long. Second corner of next year, probably gonna be paired with Canada back to back, whether it's before after, I don't know, but they've uh, secured a 10-year deal, so we're going to be seeing a lot of Miami over the next decade.
0: Yeah, it becomes like one of those uh, destination events for for Formula One fans, you know, like a, a lot of people will always say, well, Montreal such a great race to go to because uh, there's so many good things to do, in, well, in normal times, uh, there's so much going on in Montreal, there's a lot of culture, there's a great nightlife. You know the Formula One, they love going there themselves. So Miami obviously has got a lot going on on that front as well. And the one thing I thought was kind of interesting too, looking at the initial layout of the track around Hard Rock Stadium, and also just the location. The immediate uh, parallel that uh, that came into my mind was uh, was Saatchi, right? Similar kind of track. You know, it's 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 flat as a table, and uh, so it's an interesting uh, looking um, uh, layout. I mean, it's got some very tight, twisty uh, sections, and uh, you know, a very long straightaway on the back there, and then uh, between sort of halfway around, a very long straight kind of um, sweeping portion of the track, which kind of reminds me very it's not quite as drastic as uh, the Circuit of the Americas, but uh, it has that sort of similar vibe to it. Uh, so it, it'll be interesting to see what it's like. And I think if you jump onto social media, there have been some uh, some simulations that uh, certain people have been posting. So you can get a virtual runaround of the Circuit already. So that uh, should be uh, pretty cool.
1: It's, it's funny, by the way, that you mentioned Sochi, because I, I don't know if you noticed, but after Formula One had posted about the race on Instagram, Marcus Erickson had mm-hmm. actually responded, and his comment was Sochi 2.0. <laughs> so it's it's funny that your observation was exactly the same. And for, for those of you that are listening that are new to the sports, um, Sochi isn't a well-regarded track, and it's one that I think a lot of Formula One fans would be quite happy to see disappear from the calendar. Well,
0: the only person that wouldn't want to see it disappear from the calendar is Valtteri Bottas, because that seems to be the <laughs> one track that he absolutely owns. So... He would be the one guy that would be very disappointed to see Sochi uh, disappear from the from the circuit. But uh, sticking with the um, the the theme of uh, of the U.S. and uh, and Formula One, Mario Andretti has uh, has given a tap on the shoulder to the American driver that he wants to see in. Formula One, and that is IndyCar driver Colton Herta, and I think I think this is interesting because I mean the last American that uh, we saw was uh, was uh, Alexander Rossi, and uh, you know he had five outings back in 2015, so I mean it's well overdue, and that that's the thing. I mean you can get a couple of races in the United States, like in Miami, in Austin, but that's the next thing is uh, not only the just the the American sponsorship. I mean I'll be convinced that they're really making a uh, an inroads into the um, the American psyche in general, not just into the sporting uh, mentality and sporting interest of people across the country. But when I start seeing American companies branding on the side of Formula One cars, and most importantly, to, to see an American driver, I mean, because that'll be ultimately, I think, a, a, a driver that people can identify and relate to. Because otherwise, it was funny, because what you were saying that, uh, you know, the, all these European uh, races, all these European drivers, and the one thing when you were saying that that kept popping into my mind was Sasha Baron Cohen's character from, you know, Ricky lobby, right? You know, so the, is, is that that stereotype, you know, here am I talking about stereotypes here? I'm a Canadian guy wearing a hockey sweater while we're doing a podcast, but uh, that's another story. But, you know, just uh, joking aside, I mean, we need to see that. Uh, and I think that'd be the one, um, you know, the, the the one thing that would really show that there, there's some serious, um, you know, some serious inroads being made in Formula. And that's why I thought it was interesting that Herda was actually you know, you know, pointed to by Mario that uh, he's the guy that he wants to see in Formula One, because, you know, we talked about it, what, maybe a month or two ago? Like, who, who would be that guy who could potentially be that American driver to get into Formula One? And uh, now here we go, just a month or so later that, uh, that the, his name sort of pops up.
1: It is really a funny thought, right? You, you think about CODA and you think about the US Grand Prix in Austin, that for the better part of the last five or six years, you have 150,000 people funneling into that track over the race weekend, and there's no US driver to cheer mm-hmm. on. Like, yep. potentially, we're going to go to Miami next year, and there's no American driver to cheer on. And this is a country that, for all intents and purposes, dominates in every conceivable sport and motorsport, yet, They've really never had, a, a, at least in the last two or three decades, a really tangible American presence, and and I think part of that is that in the '90s, in the late '80s, you could argue that at least from an American perspective, IndyCar before the split was a was a relatively powerful open wheel racing series in its it own was, right. Yeah. But I think the Colton Herta comment is probably a good one, and and it. He could conceivably be a good fit. Now, he's not had a Formula One test. He's not a test driver. He's not a reserve driver. But he is young. He has won at the IndyCar Series level. He won, I think, his third race in that series, which was pretty remarkable. Um, He's been running a Honda-powered car for the last couple of years. But most importantly, his background and the foundation of his open-wheel racing actually happened in Europe. He competed in Euro Formula, Spanish Formula 3. So he's familiar with that level of racing. He's familiar with that psychology of racing. He's familiar with those type of vehicles. And he's also raced against a lot of current Formula One drivers in his past life. So he could conceivably be a good fit. And the other thing about him as well is that like from a personality perspective, he's a really good kid, just like Mm -hmm. so many of the young drivers in Formula One, like he would be a good fit. And I think from a Formula One perspective, he's very, very, very marketable. This is a guy that you could take to the sponsors, you can put on TV that fans would rally around. But I think you're absolutely right. The next best thing for Formula One is continue to establish your footprint in the United States by building on the races. But you've got to get an American driver and you've got to get an American driver that can stick for more than a couple of years and that can actually compete for podiums
0: yeah absolutely And at 21 years old he was really in that sweet spot with a lot of the other top young drivers like Leclerc Verstappen Lando Norris I mean George Russell all those guys in their early 20s so I mean he would be a perfect fit like that and if, I mean if he could catch on and stick and be competitive I mean, conceivably, he could be uh, in Formula 1 for, for quite a while. So, I mean, I, I completely see where Mario's going with this. It was, uh, Mark, uh, time for a quick break here on the show. When we come back, I'm going to talk about uh, why Toto Wolf is feeling pretty confident. And we'll find out why he's uh, confident about, about something right here in just a moment. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Passion, drive, and patience. All right, well, welcome back to the show. Mark and Mark breaking down all the latest Formula One news. And uh, we were talking uh, before the break about uh, the addition of Miami, the possibility or the the wish of Mario Andretti to see Colton Herta in Formula One. And, uh, well, I was just hinting at it uh, before the break there. Total Wolf, uh, he's feeling confident. And what he's feeling confident about is that we're going to get a minimum of uh, 17 races in uh, this year. And uh, obviously, uh, last year that was uh, way up in the air, what with uh, the, the, the pandemic starting and everything like that we're still slated for 23 uh, 23 races pardon me it sounded like uh, about a week or so that Canada was facing the chop but that's been pretty quiet Uh, it was uh, it was pretty much reported as a fact by CBC uh, you know our national uh, broadcaster and uh, it it hasn't been confirmed one way or another other than uh, Formula One is still in talks with the 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 race organizer and uh, I have to think that the longer this goes on that it's more likely it's going to happen but I'm I, I'm positive. I, I'm buoyed by the fact that Total Wolf, I mean, somebody of his stature is coming out and saying that he's confident that we're going to see 17 races. And although uh, at the beginning of last season, uh, I was thinking, oh, well, that's such a drag that you know we're, we're going to lose so many races compared. What we're we going to have last year it was 22, right? It was 22 races last year, I think, originally. But I mean, to get uh, 20, sorry, 17 races out of it, I know we had uh, several races where we were at the same venue, but uh, it, it, it still worked. And I think that if we could get 17 races races at 17 different tracks this year i mean obviously i want to see all 23 but the situation is fluid and it's uh you know obviously better in some places uh, than, than other but uh i i'm happy to hear total feel that uh, that this is going to be at least 17 races if not more
1: it's it's funny because when i saw this article at first i thought he was being really pessimistic and then if you start to look at the calendar you look at some of these events that are potentially at risk specifically brazil mm. it, At this point in time, it's hard to imagine we're going to Brazil this year. And a lot can happen between now and the first week of November, but it's really hard to imagine that we're potentially going to go there. It's very difficult to imagine even that we might go to Japan. This is a country that... Between now and that race is still planning to hold the 2020 Summer Olympics. Only one or two percent of the national population has been vaccinated. It's it's difficult to imagine that we would go there. So I, I think we need to brace for the fact that probably two, three, or four races will be dropped from this calendar. So mm-hmm. when you start to think it in those terms, like, yeah, you know what, 17 is probably the realistic number. The upside would probably be 18 or 19 or 20 races, but yeah, I don't I think agree. we're gonna see I don't think we're gonna see 23. Now, the interesting thing, of course, is that we still have Bahrain, which is ready to go 24-7, 365 days a year. So that's a track that's always accessible. It's just not necessarily the easiest track to get to. And, and it's funny, too, because originally, of course, the Australian Grand Prix was supposed to open the season. Um, and if that wasn't still the case, it would have been a really good fit to simply have pulled out Brazil, stuck in Bahrain, and then followed that up with Saudi Arabia exactly. and Las Marina because they could have gone back to back to back. Exactly. Exactly.
0: Right. And, uh, but
1: yeah. Yeah. Sorry.
0: No, I was going to say, uh, sorry, that, uh, you know, if you go back to Bahrain, I'd love to see that outer ring like we saw last yes. year. I mean, it was amazing that sub minute lap that they were doing. It was like a go kart track, it was absolutely phenomenal.
1: I, I, to be honest, selfishly, I'm looking at the calendar right now. Where could we fit it in? Could we fit it in between Sochi and japan i will find a way but that that was awesome (laughs) and that's one of the great things about that track is one because it's out literally out in the desert and it's a government owned and run track Mm -hmm. you don't necessarily have to worry about local opposition and contracts you can just you can stick a race there whenever you want to but to your point it's really flexible in the way that you can reconfigure the track so you can almost go to that semi oval that was really the semi oval that drives those kind of sub 60 second lap times it's pretty exciting but yeah i think i think ultimately i don't think we're going to see 23 races i don't think we'll see 20 but i think anything in the high teens would probably be considered a success
0: yeah absolutely and you know i keep thinking too about what's going to happen in here for the with the canadian grand prix at the beginning of june and you know it's still being thrown out there that uh, that uh, montreal get dropped and we'll go back to istanbul we'll go to uh to, to to turkey in place and geographically it makes sense i mean you're going we're going to portugal totally. then we're going to spain we're going to monaco then we're going to baku for the Azerbaijan. Grand Prix, and then geographically from Azerbaijan and to, to Turkey to France. I mean, they're, they're not all side by side, but I mean, it, it logistically, it's a lot easier to go from Baku to Turkey and then to France. I mean, we're looking at uh, flights of just a couple of hours here or there from venue to venue, and it's a lot easier to get the cars and the equipment and the the team personnel from those tracks from going from, from Baku all the way to Montreal and then back to France. So we'll see what happens. I mean, uh, obviously, if Montreal doesn't happen, we'll be disappointed because it'll be the second year in a row that the canadian grand prix doesn't uh, take place but like yourself i mean if we can push up where in the high teens to maybe 20 races if that's what it comes out at i'll be perfectly happy i mean obviously 23 would be ideal or would be the the, the perfect scenario but I, I think the situation is still fluid it's going to be changing and we just have to brace ourselves uh, for for the loss of some races at some point and,
1: and let me ask you this question sure if so the calendar kind of shapes up this so you know what, may 23rd we're in monaco that's going to go ahead the track that already largely assembled. We follow that up by going to Azerbaijan for Baku on June 6th. A week later, we're supposed to be on the other side of the world in Montreal. And then two weeks later, we're supposed to be back across the world again in France. If you're not going to put spectators in Montreal, if you're going to go there and you're going to race in front of empty grandstands, why go at all? Why not just to your point put the race in its symbol? Turkey's ready to go, the mm-hmm. track's ready, it's been resurfaced recently. Why why move the entire infrastructure of the sport all the way across the world when you can take that 3-hour flight from Baku to Turkey and just be done with it? Like to me it makes no sense. Like I again, I don't not I I don't want to see Canada off the calendar, but for the sake of the health and well-being of everyone involved in the sport, it mm-hmm. doesn't make any sense to come all the way to Montreal for a race that's not, being, not happening in front of fans. Simply move it to Istanbul for this one year.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, last year in Istanbul, I mean, it was a great race. I mean, the track had only awesome. been surfaced. Uh, they'd only finished it like a like a week or 10 days before. I mean, the track it was still really green, the asphalt. You throw the rain on there. I mean, it made for a spectacular weekend. I mean, it was no fun if you were actually driving the car, but I think for everybody that was totally. watching, it was uh, it was a lot of fun to watch. But I mean, just in general, I mean, you have that uh, it, it's a great track to watch, especially was it that turn 8 or whatever it is with the triple apex on it. That is uh, one of the coolest corners I think that uh, that we see in Formula 1 at any given time so it uh, certainly uh, I wouldn't mind losing Montreal this year I mean if it means that we come back next year we can put people in the stands and it's more normal because I mean there's always a great atmosphere there and it uh, just to Absolutely. see it but I mean that goes for so many other uh, venues that uh, that Formula One goes to around the world each and every uh, time but it uh, And I think that's why it looked so weird last week in in in, in Imola, where you had a, a track, a racetrack in Italy, and there was nobody in the stands there. I mean, there was like a big Ferrari banner up in the grandstands across from the pits. And I mean, the, the track is literally in the middle of the village there. And I mean, you could see people in their back gardens, but it just, it looks so weird because you'd expect to see a sea of red and like all the smoke uh, bombs going off with the red and the white and all, you know, all, the, all those cool things. So certainly the, the sooner we can get back to that uh, the, the the better but you know mark uh, before we get into some of the other news I just want to throw this in because we're going to go into a break here in a couple of minutes and I think this is a kind of an interesting one to have because we we've, we've talked about this among ourselves uh, back uh, back and forth but it is interesting uh, you know Liberty's been in control of the sport now for several years and I can't help but thinking this is just one thought that sort of pops up in my mind every once in a while is okay we're a year into a pandemic we saw all these things go through over the past year we saw these emergency measures approved by all the teams we saw a new concord agreement all these new regulations the cost cap and all this that was agreed to in, uh, in in near record time and i can't help but wondering what would have happened to formula one if liberty had not come on board five years ago and bernie ecclestone was still running the show i mean nothing against bernie i mean he did what he did he built the sport into what it was over 40 years or whatever whatever it might be But when I look at where Formula One is now and what they're doing and the fact that they're still making this thing work still in the middle of a global pandemic, it it just that that question just keeps popping up. It's like, what if Bernie was still running the show?
1: Yeah, I think you and I talked about this offline a couple of times as well, And I look back at last year and we talk about the fact that the sport went to Australia and they made a very difficult but tactical strategic decision that they were going to cancel that race in the middle of the race weekend. I don't think Bernie does that. I think Bernie forces that race through. He ignores all imaginable health authorities, and he makes it happen. And I think you would have had to drag him kicking and screaming out of a boardroom to cancel any of the races last season. But the other consideration, too, is last year was really unique. We had the pandemic, but we also had a number of different social justice movements. And one of the things, and I was critical of the way it was handled. I didn't think it was... Entirely well executed. I think they could have done more. I think they could have marketed it in different ways. But the sport also, at a certain level, embraced the Black Lives Matter movement as well. I don't see Bernie going any near or anywhere near any social justice movements. Yeah. But you're absolutely yeah. right. I just, I think, I think Bernie's inability to manage through crisis could have broken the sport last year in so many ways. I don't think I don't think he would have had the confidence of the teams. I don't think he would have had the confidence of the drivers. I don't think they would have trusted that they that he had their best interests in mind. I don't think the teams would have uh, trusted his business acumen. I think I think last year could have been a, a make-or-break season with Bernie, and I think he could have broken the sport.
0: Yeah, you you really can't help but uh, come to that conclusion, and especially when you think about all these major things that were pushed through, and I mean, especially the most uh, recent one was the whole Red Bull takeover the Honda IP, right? I, I just could not see... I mean, there was some opposition there. There was a bit of friction there that... Uh, and I mean, we don't really know the true extent of that, but I just do not see that happening... Under the uh, you know the, the the guidance of Bernie Ecclestone, especially the the whole the whole Red Bull taking it over, but then also the whole engine freeze part. It'd be like, well, you know, you buy Honda if you want to. If you can't make it work, that's fine. But you know, we're not going to change. We're not freezing the, the 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 rules or the regulations. We're not changing anything else. You either do it or you don't. And you know, if it doesn't work for you, then too bad. Yep. Yeah anyway so uh, let's take another break here mark uh, we're a little bit ahead of schedule but uh it's, it'll be a good place to bre- uh, break because we're going to come back and i want to talk about danny ricardo and i, I you know i want to get your take on this i think his start at mclaren so far this year i think you can maybe call it a little bit kind of lukewarm i don't think he's really set uh, any fires uh, you know and made it a, a real amazing start at mclaren but anyways we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit after the break and we'll do so in just a moment so don't go away we'll be back in just a moment All right. Well, welcome back to the show. Thank you for downloading and listening to the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts from. And for all of you tuning in and watching on YouTube, we're talking about all the latest Formula One news. And this was one um, an article that popped up. Uh, I thought was quite uh, interesting about uh, Danny Ricciardo saying he had to swallow his pride in the the swap with his teammate uh, Lando Norris at Imola last uh, weekend. I mean, if you look at the driver standings uh, right now, you have uh, you have Lewis on top with uh, and Max Verstappen only a single point. Uh, behind you have Lando Norris, the McLaren driver, first of the McLaren drivers. He's third in the world championship uh, at the moment, twenty-seven points, and his teammate Ricardo all the way down in seventh uh, with uh, fourteen uh, points. And I, I think Ricardo, obviously, there's going to be a bit of a settling in uh, period for any new driver with the new team. But considering what we've seen Danny Ricardo do, and this this McLaren is obviously a good car. It's got a good engine in it, obviously with the the, the Mercedes power unit. And I'm I don't want to say I'm disappointed in what uh, Danny Ricardo has done so far in the first couple of races with uh, McLaren, but he's not really lighting it up. I I don't know if he's just uh, maybe, you know, still finding his uh, feet there, but uh, I I don't think it's maybe going quite the way that Ricardo himself expected.
1: It's... It's a really interesting point you bring up, and it's not one that I've put a lot of thought into. I I think the consideration is this, right? Lando Norris has been in that team since 2018. So he didn't race in any Grand Prix in 2018, but he did extensive testing. He raced the entire 2019 calendar in that car, he raced the entire 2020 calendar in that car, and of course he's a member of the team this year. So he has a tremendous amount of familiarity with their mechanics, with their engineers. You could say, and I hate this phrase because it sounds so cliche, but you could say that car was really built around him. That said, he's adjusting to the new motor as much as Daniel Ricciardo is adjusting to that new car. Lando's had a great start. He finished fourth in Bahrain. He was on the podium at Imola last weekend. Daniel Ricardo, a seventh-place finish, a sixth-place finish, maybe not great, but not necessarily terrible either. Like, healthy in the points. I mm-hmm. think it's a little bit early. If, if we get to Azerbaijan or if we get to Canada or Turkey or wherever we end up racing, and he's still consistently three, four, five grid spots behind his teammate, I think that's when we can start Becoming a little bit alarmed, or we can start settling into the realization that, hey, Lando may just be that top tier premier talent that you and I have kind of suggested that maybe he is, right? Like this could be less a criticism of Daniel Ricciardo ultimately, but really just an acknowledgement that Lando Norris might be one of the absolutely premier up and coming talents in the sport.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. I mean, how how often have we talked about it over the years that uh, Max Verstappen has done a lot more with that Red Bull, absolutely. and he probably should. I mean, is this a case that uh, Lando Norris is doing the same with the McLaren? I mean, the, the McLaren's a good car. I don't. I, th- I think that they're in, obviously in a much better place now than they were a couple of years ago. But is uh, is he just uh, being able to you know extract that much more out of that car than his teammate is? I mean, obviously, like you say, I mean, you make a great point that he's been in the team for a couple of years now and maybe he just is one of these drivers that just has that natural ability to, to do that. I mean, if you go and read uh, James Allen's uh, book about uh, Michael Schumacher, he was able, one of these guys, to take and push the car to the edge of the envelope and beyond, and, and just to find performance and grip that you wouldn't find, uh, you know, uh, you know mere mortals would uh, be able to do. I mean, you go back to uh, France a couple of years ago in, uh, in Lando's uh, rookie season, and what did he have? Was it a hydraulic failure or something right, in the last couple right. of laps of the race? I mean, he was on for a good solid points finish I mean he struggled home in ninth or tenth or something like that but I mean I think that was an indication right there that uh, okay this guy is uh, for real I mean maybe other drivers would have uh, parked it and retired the car but he managed to uh, to, to fight it uh, and bring it home and it just uh, kind of goes back to that season as well or maybe even uh, before we had France tossed the uh, team principal at AlphaTauri or Toro Rosso was, was back there because you know they had uh, the Kiwi driver in the car was his name uh, Brendan Hartley and he wasn't really doing <laughs> Doing, uh you know it wasn't really setting formula one on fire and i i think tossed it uh, thrown it out there in the media that he wanted to arrange maybe some sort of deal where they could bring Lando into Rosso on some sort of temporary basis for the the remainder of that season and for 2018 or some something like that. It was it, it was some sort of arrangement like that. And and Zach Brown he flat out shot it out of the water and said you know, it's not going to happen. Our plan is to get Lando into this car as soon as possible because we know that uh, he's the real deal. He you know he's well deserving of a, a seat in Formula One and we want to get this guy in a car. And I mean he's he's proved. Zach's faith in him uh you know like it, he's, he's proven it he's paid it back and and, and beyond and i think that's uh, really what uh you know what we're seeing at the moment and i think some of the quotes that brown was even saying this week is that uh, that that's the uh, past weekend at Imola was uh, Zach or, sorry um, Zach's definitely at the next level i mean one <laughs> premier uh, names in formula 1 uh but lando was really taking that next step as a driver And I I think that, uh, you know, it's exciting to see, you know, these uh, young drivers. You know, it doesn't matter if it's Max Verstappen, uh, Lando Norris, and then, you know, some of maybe the unproven other names. I mean, uh, uh, Leclerc is one of those uh, guys that's obviously proven himself. I mean, if we get another one of these guys in Lando Norris that turns out to be, like you say, like a premier talent in Formula One, then that's going to be exciting for the sport for the next 10 years. I mean, you've got Leclerc, Verstappen, and Lando Norris all in their early 20s. You get these guys in competitive cars, and then, you know, maybe uh, George Russell, maybe this guy's for real. You get him into a good car as well. it, uh, It could be some very, very exciting times coming up in the future.
1: This is why Formula One needs to be really excited about where they are right now in terms of appealing to a younger demographic. Absolutely. Like I'm, I'm looking at the yep. driver lineup right now. Lewis appeals to a broader demo. He's just, he's charismatic, he's personable, he's a marketable star. But you and I both know he's probably not going to be in the sport for probably more than two or three more years. Yeah. Max Verstappen, younger driver, huge appeal, unique personality, super hard ed, ultra competitive, one of the best in the sport. Lando Norris, young compelling, charismatic, Charles Leclerc the same, Valtteri probably going to be out of the sport shortly, Carlos young, talented, personable, Daniel Ricciardo probably middle-aged by driver standards but Mm -hmm. still a big personality and then you keep going you've got um, Lance Stroll, Yuki, you've got uh, George Russell, Nicholas Latifi, like there's so much great, and Mick Schumacher, there's so much great young talent in this sport mm-hmm. that speaks the same language as the young demographic that is being catered to with programs like Drive to Survive. I just think the sport's in a really good place. Now, just going back to that, my, that, McLaren thing real quick I, I just have to reinforce this point once again what they're doing this year despite having gone through the massive organ transplant that is replacing a Renault power unit with a Mercedes power unit in a single offseason is is remarkable. Like, I think you have to remember that these Formula One cars are built from the inside out. You basically choose a power unit, you either build it yourself or you buy that power unit, and you build a car around it to complement the characteristics of that motor. The car that McLaren is driving was fundamentally designed for a Renault power unit, and they yes. wedged yeah. a Mercedes power unit into that car over the winter, and they haven't skipped a beat. They're third in the constructors, and I know it's early two races in, but they're third in the constructors championship and up on Ferrari by seven points. I just, I think as a package, that team's doing some really good things. And while I I agree Daniel Ricciardo's performance, maybe a little bit lukewarm so far. Two races in. Let's see what it looks like after four or five.
0: Yeah, it, it's absolutely early days. But just uh, more to your point about the, these young, marketable, really personable drivers, as much as I enjoy watching Max uh, driving, especially now that he's kind of matured a little bit and we, we don't see the things like the Verstappen slide into the corners and that those double moves and things that, uh, you know, he's kind of grown out or maybe been it's been legislated out of the sport to a certain extent. But the one thing is when, when I look at guys like Lando definitely, well, Ricardo being a little bit older and and Lance and, and, and Nick Latifi, all these young drivers is that compared to a lot of these other guys and, you know, being half Dutch myself, you know, I, I understand the, the, the um, you know, a, a lot of the cultural side, the personality side, but I just find Max, I find his personality sometimes a little bit kind of abrasive you know what i mean i mean yeah
1: it is definitely abrasive yeah he is not the warm fuzzy inviting accessible driver that Mm -hmm. that lando or charles or george russell or nicholas latifi are and i but i think that's also part of the appeal right is he can get away with it because he's a successful driver if he was 20th on the on the driver's standings that wouldn't fly but he gets away with it because of the way he races
0: yeah and the all the other thing is too is that uh, the, the personality that he has that uh, you know he often speaks what's on his mind he doesn't uh, kind of sugarcoat it that sometimes in being in the media myself there's one thing i always hated was just that you you ask an athlete a question you get all these kind of like you know these metaphors you know there are backs up against the wall and we've got to dig deep or these real political wishy-washy non-answers i mean max quite often is pretty blunt and will Say what's uh, what's on his mind, which uh, I find re- uh, refreshing. I think if you're like the communications coordinator at, uh, at Red Bull, it probably you know might, might you might have your heart in the throat, uh, you know, in an interview saying, well, you know, if he gets asked uh, you know a controversial question, how is he going to respond? But you know, as as uh, as a fan and somebody in the media, I find uh, I, I find that a little bit uh, refreshing. But you know, just before we go on to the the, the next story here, uh, Mark, I, I was just uh, thinking too, just uh, like you're saying about these young uh, marketable, uh, personal uh, drivers. One of the moments that stood out from DTSS season three was the one with uh, Science and, uh, and Norris, and I thought it was really funny. That I think it was at the beginning of that episode, where Lando car- calls up Carlos, and I don't know if Carlos was messing with him, and he kept like uh, you know he's talking to him, and then he's just like he's like don't don't you know who this is, and he's like it's it's it's, it's Lando, and he's like who, and then you know, Lando just completely loses it. He just has goes into like this has this fit of hysterical laughter. You know, I I thought it was so funny because you know I I could see myself you know well obviously I'm not. 21 anymore but i could you know i could totally see that you know like me doing that with my friends you know even at the at this age kind of you know, like you know pulling the chain and just sort of jerking one of your friends around i thought that was a really uh funny moment but uh,
1: before before we go into the next sure. story i'm going to derail a little bit more and i promise the listeners that this is the last time we'll reference <laughs> drive to survive this episode well at least the after, after the uh <laughs> after the bot test George Russell crash last weekend, simultaneously a million drive to survive memes popped up which is netflix like netflix getting excited after that crash happened and there was a million hilarious memes just about the fact that <laughs> they, their entire season is made they're gonna have like a seven episode story arc about that crash and they're uh, they're as ecstatic as we all are to see how it's gonna play out this time next year
0: and uh, shoot we gotta wait now like another 11 months before that next uh, that next drop totally. happens but uh, hey sticking with uh, with mclaren and sticking with the uh, the the, the the younger driver thing. This is a nice segue because Carlos Sainz believes that uh, McLaren, sorry Ferrari can actually be ahead of McLaren at some of the tracks uh, this season, and I thought it was really interesting this uh, this past weekend, especially on that long start finish street uh, straight that we see at uh, at Imola, and then going into Tamburello that really well where the big accident between uh, Bottas and uh, and George happened, but. I was, um, I I have to admit, I was impressed with the straight line speed that I saw from the Ferrari. I mean, it it wasn't uh, top end like we've uh, seen in previous years and maybe not as top end as say say some of the Mercedes powered cars, but it definitely, it it
1: was noticeable. Let's just put it that way. Absolutely. And you and I talked about this a lot in the off season. And I think you and I had ultimately come to the conclusion that Ferrari, and it sounds really weird to even be saying this, but Ferrari could very much be a sleeper this year. And mm-hmm. I think they acknowledged in the off season that they had solved their power unit issues. And I think you and I both know what that <laughs> means. And if, if you don't know what I'm referring to, please go back and visit some of our off season episodes. But they'd also address some of the the drag issues that were really proving to be challenging for last year's car. But absolutely, you can certainly see it in their straight line acceleration and the immense punch that the ferrari cars have coming out of some of the tighter corners this year is absolutely pronounced and even when you see them on some of the straightaways competing with cars that would walk past them last year is is really encouraging for this team to be totally honest and right now they're sitting fourth in the constructors it's early they're seven points behind mclaren mm-hmm. but i don't see any reason why those two teams couldn't have a monumental battle as the season goes on now i'm not i'm not not entirely certain how much more Ferrari is going to invest in this year's car uh, relative to what they're going to start investing in the 2022 car. But I think we could see some really great battles between McLaren and Ferrari as the season progresses.
0: Yeah, I certainly hope that that that's uh, the case. I mean, Ferrari needs to step it up. Obviously, they've been uh, pretty disappointing over the past uh, year and a half or so. And uh, it's really encouraging uh, to see that. And, you know, pun intended, they could be a bit of a dark horse this year. And uh, (laughs) I know it groans all around. But Yeah, I mean, it it is good to see and it it would be fun to see them kind of uh, fighting it uh, back and forth. But uh, more to your point about uh, when are teams going to sort of uh, draw that line in the sand and say, okay, this is as much as we're willing to invest in time and money with this car and we're going to start focusing on uh, next year. the 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 big question mark is uh, really Mercedes, right? I mean, they, you know, as Total Wolf says, is we're racing, we're we're chasing perfection. That's what what we're after, and uh, it would really be interesting that if um, you know if if and when they decide to uh, to decide to call it a day on this uh, car and focus more that, okay, this car is only for the remainder of this year, but this next car that's going to be introduced for twenty twenty two, this is the first car of a whole new generation, a whole new era in Formula One, and we've owned this era of Formula One all the way back to 2014. And we want to be just as successful and dominant in this new era. And it just kind of makes you wonder. I mean, not that you're going to throw in the towel or hoist the white flag or whatever you want to say. It just kind of makes you wonder at, at some point. It's like, yeah, well, we're willing to concede this year with the view that we're going to come back next year and uh, we're, we're really going to bring it.
1: For the, for the benefit of our younger Drive to Survive generation, and I shouldn't suggest they're all younger because I think a lot of the Drive to Survive fans are of a much broader demographic. Mm-hmm. I know we've got people in their 40s and their 50s and their 60s that are just getting into the sport, but I think it's really important to provide a little bit of context to what you and I are speaking to. I think there's a misperception for people that are new to the sport or that don't watch the sport that the teams show up with a car at the first race of the season, typically Australia, and that's the car that they race through to the end of the season. And in formula one, that's really not the case. Teams continue to develop and continue to rework the car historically as the season goes on. Now, there's a point where they're often developing two cars. They're developing the car that they're actively racing, mm-hmm. but at the same time, they're in devel- or they're developing in parallel the car that they plan to race the next season. Now, there typically is a point in the season where the team says, hey, look, we're going to stop developing the current in-season car because we don't think we're going to make any financial strides or we're not going to get a return on that capital or, hey, we're just far enough back in the constructors championship that it doesn't matter. And then they shift all their resources to the new car but your points are really valid one right like the 2022 car is an entirely different beast from 2014 until this year the cars have been they've looked different they've there's been new innovations we've gone wider we've had lower spoilers we've introduced the halo but fundamentally the cars have been very similar and they've all been built around the same kind of power unit next year's cars are a totally different beast so i think there's some hard decision making for some of these teams this year which is how much do we want to invest in a car that we're not going to be carrying over to 2022 at all because even though teams typically introduce a new car for a new season they carry over a lot from the previous year and maybe not physically carrying over but conceptually they move over a lot of concepts whatever they're developing for this year's car will have no application to next year's car but i think what we're really discussing is for teams like ferrari and mercedes how far down that pathway of the season do they continue developing this year's car
0: yeah, you know, uh, you have made a ton of great points uh, to that. And the, the one thing I always find really interesting is that the car that they start the season with, because you always see those um, those uh, incremental updates that they apply, like right. at the Spanish Grand Prix, and then again through the summer, and sort of incrementally throughout the year, that the car that finishes the season is, you know, fundamentally two, three, four, five seconds quicker than the uh, you know the totally. you know the, the car at the beginning of the season. But the thing is, they all get quicker over the course of the season. You know, the, the, and the sad thing is, over the past couple of years, everybody's gotten quicker but (laughs) Williams is still two and a half seconds a lap slower (laughs) than everyone else but we're going to talk about them and I got a really interesting uh, story to talk about them because I think that despite the double DNF at uh, Imola last weekend uh, because of the crashes and whatnot I think that uh, it was uh, hopefully a positive sign of uh, things to come and we're going to talk about that and some other stories after we take a quick break here so don't go away we'll be back in just a moment. All right. Well, welcome back to the show. And Mark, this was one one thing that I thought was uh, really uh, quite uh, interesting. And so uh, this is going back to the, the the cost cap, which is set at one hundred and forty five million dollars uh, for for this year. And of course, you know, we're going to have this sliding uh, scale that's going to go down. It's going to reduce it by five million dollars a year over the next couple of years. And so uh, obviously, as we've talked about uh, quite a well, mostly over the off season when the news was a little bit uh, a little bit less uh, frequent than it is uh, right now, but one of the things that they had to do was downsize basically across the the, the the board to reduce costs and get under this $145 million cap. And one of the big things that was really interesting after that big crash between George Russell and Valtteri Bottas last weekend is just when you have a car that's a write-off like that, now in this cost cap era what is going to be the financial implications of that? Because, you know, if you're riding off of a car, you know, you got to have to compensate for that. And that was one of the issues when it came to these uh, sprint races that we're going to be seen or that we're going to see trialed at uh, various races uh, throughout the the, the year this year, was that, uh, you know, teams were uh, afraid that if there was a, you know, an incident and there was uh, yeah, because every time you go on the track, there is a potential for damage as a result of an accident or just losing a front wing. And nothing in Formula One is cheap, even if you lose the end of a wing I mean you know <laughs> it's going to cost money to replace that because everything like I say in Formula One is is pricey but it, it is certainly very very uh, interesting that uh, this has been a topic that has kind of percolated up uh, through all the other news after the uh, Emilia-Romagna Grand Prix last weekend.
1: Yeah, I I agree and this is one it, it's sad but one of the first things that I started thinking about after that crash happened and of course the principal concern whenever you see a really catastrophic crash like that is, are the drivers okay? Are the drivers okay? Are the drivers okay? But as soon as you realize that they were, I, I start to look at the, the remnants of the vehicles and, and you start to wonder how much of that is salvageable. And these F1 teams do a phenomenal job. You look at you look at Yuki's car and the fact that they were able to get it on the grid, and the gearbox was split in half, but yet they were able to salvage enough of the car that they could compete in the race. But it's pretty clear that in this race, Bottas's car is effective effectively a complete write-off. And I think the real concern here is that if you were operating in a world where there were no cost caps, so for Mercedes, for instance, there's no cost cap. It sucks that your car's written off and it sucks that you're going to have to write a big check. And these cars aren't cheap. Let's be very, very clear. Yeah. A carbon fiber monocoque chassis is 650,000 euro to a million euro. Um, all of the parts on this Mercedes car are completely bespoke. Everything's carbon fiber. They're all space age materials. Like these cars cost millions of dollars to assemble. For Mercedes, it kind of sucks because we just have to cut a check. But now to your point, the financial implications are, Hey, we all have to operate under a cost cap. And if we're close to that cost cap, ultimately this erodes our development budget. So maybe those upgrades that we were hoping to roll out in two or three weeks or a month, maybe we have to make some tough decisions because we have to take the money that we were going to invest in upgrades and rebuild the car the way it was just so we can compete in the next race. And for another team like Williams, it's historically, less about hey, you know what? We're going to hit the cost cap or we're going to have to cut a check, but rather, where's that money going to come from? And we saw that in Drive to Survive last year where Gunther Steiner's having that really difficult conversation with Gene Haas. And ultimately, the underlying message of that was, Gene's like, I'm not going to cut any more money. I'm not going to cut any more checks if our drivers are making stupid mistakes. Like, we don't have that level of income because we're not collecting constructors championship points at the rate the other teams are. And from a sponsorship perspective, we're in a very, very vulnerable position. So, Yeah, it's it's interesting how this plays out. Now, again, the cost cap is designed to level the field, right? Like, you know what? Mercedes can't spend a billion dollars anymore. And Williams is going to be in a position where they're going to compete a little bit more favorably versus some of the big fish because the budget cap's going to be in a place at least in a couple of years which they can manage. But but yeah, it's it's funny the first thing I thought when I realized both those drivers were okay is what is the financial implications of this crash going to be to both of those two teams?
0: Yeah, you know, it is really funny because it was really one of these sort of unintended consequences when when you know this whole cost cap thing came in and when, first when it was a discussion then it became a thing my natural sort of instinct and my natural my, my initial thoughts were okay well that means that they're gonna have to cut out of development they're gonna have to cut here and they're gonna exactly. have to cut there and personnel I never even considered something like this and when I saw these uh, you know these stories popping up over the past uh, several days, I'm just like wow this is something that uh, we we never even uh, thought about and I think it's good too because just you're a team that is one of the select few that basically has unlimited uh, resources like you say it sucks for Mercedes because they have to write a check to build a new car but again you shouldn't be able to just buy your way out of a situation that exactly. because you know the, the on the other side of the uh, you know the pit lane or further down the pit lane Williams is having to do the same thing they're going to have to build a, a whole new car to replace uh, George Russell's car and they don't have these uh, you know bottomless pockets and big stacks of cash, and for them it's a, it's a much bigger issue. I mean, for for Mercedes, it's it's a bit of an issue for for the money, but it's more of an inconvenience, right? And I think that's Absolutely. that's where the, the the cost cap is a really uh, you know interesting uh, you know it's it's a really interesting proposition now because now, like you say, it's just uh, they're they're going to take uh, they're going to take uh, both of these cars, they're going to look through it and see okay, well, what is uh, salvageable? Because like you say, all the parts are bespoke, all of them are basically. Hand- handmade and and unique to those cars. I mean, I know there is these listed and unlisted parts and things like that, but I mean, it's it's very, very interesting and something I, I didn't really expect.
1: One thing I'll add as well, and I think this is important for our our listeners to understand, especially if you're new to the sport, we keep alluding to the 2022 car. And I think what's really important to understand is Formula One is trying to create a reality of economic sustainability. And I think they came to this realization that we can't be in a world where we have one or two teams that can spend four or $500 million a year developing their car. And we have these other teams that can barely spend $100 million developing their car. We're never going to have parity. Mercedes will die. Dominate every single year, Ferrari Waldies dominate. So the reality is, part of introducing the cost cap is we want to create some parity in the sport, but the cost cap can't work if the teams are continuing to develop bespoke parts. So, one of the biggest things about the 2022 car is that we're going to see significantly more standardization of parts shared across all of the teams. So, teams will continue to be able to develop a power unit or source power units, and there's certain formula that they all have to adhere to, but more. of the parts on the 2022 cars will be standardized across all of the teams than we've possibly ever seen. So that's one of the ways that ultimately this cost cap is going to work because the teams aren't necessarily going to be spending $17,000 on a bespoke halo, and they're not going to be spending necessarily $150,000 on a new front wing every three months as it continues to go through multiple iterations. The formula is going to be imposed upon them, and there'll be much, much stricter guidelines on what that part can look like, which is intended... Partly to dampen performance to an extent, but ultimately inject some financial sustainability in the sport.
0: You know, it was funny. I was watching some uh, classic F one uh, races on YouTube uh, last week, and there there was a, I'm not sure what it was. I think it was a couple of years ago. It was at Brands Hatch. and They had a lot of uh, you know 1980s era Formula One cars. It was just uh, amazing. And one of the, the the whole reason I was watching this one video because they had a McLaren mp 44 which is, still has to be one of my favorite Formula One cars of all time. If you're not familiar with it, just Google it. Google it up. Yeah. mp 44 just a beautiful car, and just you know the sound of that uh, turbo Honda. Uh, engine was just uh, something else but you know it's funny when you go and look at the pictures and you look at the front wing of a car from the 80s or the 90s maybe even as into the early 2000s you look at it, whew, that looks like really plain you know and then you look I mean especially a couple of years ago before they brought in these rules to kind of simplify the front wings I mean they are just amazing pieces of technology, the way that they sort of layer these different um, different levels on the uh, the front wings. I mean, they're a little bit simplified to what they were even two or three years ago at this point, but uh, just uh, amazing. But of course, I mean, um, you know, a car that uh, you have in Formula One now compared to, say, you know, some of the ones that some of the new drivers, some of the drivers that changed to new teams this year, they were able to uh, drive some of the older spec cars that were, what, maybe 2017, 2018. Even those cars are so obsolete compared to what they have on the track. Right now, I mean, it's it's amazing at uh, the the speed that it does uh, progress in in Formula One. So Mark, uh, before we go into our final break here, I just want to touch on this uh, really quickly uh, because uh, we've been going around uh, a little bit uh, on this one and hinting at it. Uh, And again, uh, just uh, going back to the big crash between uh, Bottas and Russell, uh, Valtteri was uh, saying, because I know that you love having a a Valtteri Bottas uh, story to talk about each and every week, (laughs) but he feels he doesn't uh, break the, you know, hockey has the code, but apparently Formula One has, uh, you know, gentlemen's rules and uh, that this is basically that you don't, uh, you know, make uh, evasive uh, maneuvers under. Breaking is very much like the Max Verstappen slide and the rule that they brought in back in 2015 or 2016 or whatever it was. Um, anyways, uh, Valtteri believes that he didn't do anything. He feels that the in-car camera was justified. Russell is still uh, he's still pointing the finger at, at Valtteri. And you know, like we, we talked about in the post-race show a couple of days ago, that without that that overhead uh, helicopter shot or a better shot from uh, off the track or maybe even a more from uh, from George's car, it, it was really kind of hard to tell because it really it. Didn't It did look like Valtteri did glide a little bit to to the right there. And of course, uh, Russell reacted to something and he got onto that wet grass. And of course, the rest is history.
1: I I agree. And I think it was the I think it was the camera from Kimmy that was following the two cars, and, and you're right. There wasn't a clear, decisive black and white shot that showed that he either was or wasn't at fault. But the closest that I've seen, and I think it was Kimmy's car, was there was footage from the car that was pursuing the two of them immediately before the accident happened. And I must have watched it five thousand times, and and I can see a little bit of movement from Bottas's car, and I'm talking a fraction, which on mm-hmm. track may have translated to. Four Four or five inches, but ultimately it was Russell that reacted. He should have known better. But again, this isn't an adjudication of who was at fault and what who wasn't at fault. But ultimately, I I do think it's interesting the way that this one's played out. Um, It's a unique situation, right? Because ultimately, Russell's long term, short term, medium term ambitions is to be driving. Valtteri's car. But mm-hmm. in the process of this accident, he caused his potential employer many millions of dollars in part replacement costs. And it's also challenging because the team principal for the team that he hopes to drive for is also his personal manager. It's just it's a very unique kind of interconnected spider web of soap opera, but ultimately I I'm still and I know that's not the question that you asked me, but I'm still kind of out I'm still out to lunch a little bit in terms of who was at fault here, but I tend to actually side a little bit with Bottas and I feel a little bit Mm -hmm. bad for him because I don't necessarily think that he was at fault and I don't think he was really stepping off of the racing line in a, problematic way like you've had a week to reflect on this now like your thoughts was Russell at fault was Bottas at fault I'm curious to know yeah
0: I yeah I, I've thought about it kind of quite a bit uh, since the the, the the race I think they're both at fault I don't think it's like 50 50 it's probably like 70 30 or 80 20 or something like that and it did look like Russell or sorry um, uh, Bottas did go to that one side but without that clear-cut uh, camera angle it really you you really lose the the amount that he's moving over if uh, that, uh, you know, that's just, you know, actually what happened, right? So I think that you could, uh, you know, apportion blame to both of them. But as you just said, I think that George did overreact more. I mean, But as soon as he got onto the the grass, I mean, he was just going to be a passenger. Because, I mean, if you go back to uh, DTS Season 2 when they talk about that uh, race at uh, Hockenheim when it was all wet and it was just chaotic, I mean, uh, Bottas, he crashed it and put it into the wall. I mean, everybody went off the track in that race at one point. He talks about how he got onto the white uh, paint on the edge of the track. He said it wasn't by much. It may have only been millimeters. But, I mean, that's really what what it takes and again it goes back to what we were saying the other night uh, on the post-race show uh, that uh, this is an old school track it's not like say the more modern track where they could literally drive several cars down one of these straightaways line abreast that this is basically only wide enough under normal circumstances uh, for for maybe two cars to go around or you know drive side by side if there's going to be an overtaking that maneuver and unfortunately, uh, George, uh, for, for one reason or another, due to his own overreaction or being pushed or a combination of, uh, of both of those factors, he's the one that went onto the grass. And at that point, he was just uh, a passenger, collected uh, Valtteri, and sadly, the accident happened.
1: But fortunately, like you say, both of them were okay, and that's ultimately where, what happened. Where Valtteri is totally at fault, though, and, and this is a, an apt criticism, if, if you were driving arguably the best car on the grid, you have no business being in a position on the <laughs> track. Williams? Yeah, where you're <laughs> competing with the Williams car, right? Yeah. Like you're exposing yourself and you're making yourself vulnerable when you're fighting for track position with what are effectively inferior cars. Mm-hmm. This is the kind of thing that can happen when you're not racing for a podium position at the front of the track and you start mixing it up with these other cars. So whereas... I don't necessarily think that I would apportion most of the blame to Bottas for the, the the collision. I absolutely fault him for being in that position to begin with. You should have and been I there. Think Exactly, exactly. He should not have been there at all. Well, I mean, it's
0: it, it, this is something that we've seen before. I mean, go back to Turkey last year when similar horrible, greasy conditions. I mean, you look at some guys, we know that Max is good in the wet. We know Lewis is good in the wet. I mean, there's other drivers throughout the different eras of Formula One, like Schumacher and Senna. These were guys that were just uh, absolute masters in the, uh, in the wet. And uh, you look at Bottas going back to Turkey last year. I mean, he had several incidents spinning. He was way behind his teammate. I, I can't remember. Did he get lapped by Lewis at the end of the race? See, He, he may, may have done or was close to it. So, I mean, he just obviously is somebody that just does not race well in the, in the wet. Anyways, Mark, uh, I know that you want to sit here and talk for at least another 25 minutes about Valtteri Bottas, but I'm going to cut you off there. We're going to take one final break here on the show. and We're going to come back and we're going to talk about your second favorite topic. And we're going to talk about Red Bull because we haven't talked about them just yet. We'll do so. Some- so in just a moment. So don't go away. We'll be right back. All right. Well, welcome back to the show. And Mark, as I promised, we, we've got our mandatory and obligatory Valtteri Bottas story under the belt again for this week. And uh, I know this is a story that, uh, well, may, maybe it doesn't get under your skin as much as the Bottas uh, stories that uh, I seem to, uh, you know, to plague you with each and every week. But I know that uh, you love talking about uh, Red Bull. But uh, this one I think is interesting. I think it's worth uh, talking about. So obviously, uh, this is their last year, their partnership uh, with Honda. So far, it's been uh, pretty good, uh, pretty successful uh two races into the season that is of course but uh, they are now targeting the best and top talent as they set uh, the, as they set off on building their own engine division and i think uh, that's uh it's going to be really cool to watch to see what these guys are going to do as uh, an out and out works team and i think that it seemed just in general regardless if uh, you know this whole honda situation came about or not it just kind of for me and maybe hindsight is 2020 but it kind of seemed that they were in a bit of a an odd spot as it's uh, you know where they were I mean they've been a very successful team over the years I mean they won a number of championships uh, about 10 years ago in the Sebastian Vettel era and, I mean they've been obviously not quite as successful in the meantime but maybe this is what they really need to do or needed to do and they were just nudged in that direction to really get back to uh, being uh, you know a real legitimate consistent contender in Formula One and become a works team in their own right a, a, a manufacturer of both car and engine.
1: I absolutely love this story. One, I, I think it's heartbreaking that Honda's leaving the sport. Agreed. Again. Yes. I think I yeah. think this is the third or fourth time that they're leaving. <laughs> I, I also think it's a, a little bit odd though that their contribution to the sport this time around hasn't been as a works team, but rather simply as a an engine supplier. The 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 cost of developing a power unit is absurd. It's significantly more expensive to develop a power unit than it is to develop the package that goes around it. So I always thought it was a little bit peculiar that when Honda came back into F1 in 2015, it was solely as an engine supplier. And I think my thought was maybe their short-term ambitions were to develop a power unit with the long-term ambition of being able to stand up a works team as a whole. And that never happened for a number of different reasons. But I do I do have to say that cosmetically, the Honda banner on the wing of the Red Bull looks amazing. It's eye-catching. And I, yeah, it's really, really eye-catching. And, and I'm very, very happy that Honda's been able to find some success in the sport before their departure because it would have been awful for their lasting legacy in Formula One to have been their experience with McLaren. For whatever reason, it didn't work out. But I'm very, very happy that they've seen some success with Red Bull. But I'm also incredibly excited for all the reasons that you just spoke to that Red Bull's been in the sport for a decade and a half. They've won four constructors championships, four drivers championships. Um, even in the V6 turbo hybrid era when they are running the Renault engines, they were outperforming the works team from which they were buying those <laughs> engines from. Like they're, they're a well-resourced well, uh, team. They have very, very significant financial backing. They do things the right way. And I'm very, very excited to see what this would look like. So for those of you that don't know, Red Bull's operation is based out of Milton Keynes. Milton Keynes is a newer British city, a little less than an hour from Silverstone. They have all of their development there, their paint, their, their wind tunnels there, their paint shops there. They do all of their work there. When Honda and Red Bull partnered up, the engine was being partly developed in the UK, but the bulk of the heavy lifting was happening in Japan. So the heavy lifting from an R&D perspective was happening in Japan. When they bought the IP, what didn't come with that IP was necessarily the production facilities. And again, big. Based on the fact that they're in Japan, that's not particularly helpful. So they're building from the ground up an entirely new facility in Milton Keynes to accommodate the development of the engine going forward. So to your point, I'm excited to see what this team can do from a works perspective. And not just because they're bringing that engine internally, but because one, they have the resources to continue to develop it in a meaningful way, but because the foundation of the power unit that they have now is so freaking good. And again, Mm -hmm. we're gonna change power units in a couple of years. But for the next couple of years, they've got one heck of a package. The chassis is great. The suspension's great. The steering geometry is great. The aero in this car is great. And then they've got this incredibly powerful power unit package tucked into that car. I'm, I'm super, super excited for this team.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that uh, you know the the uh, the stars are lining up uh, nicely for them this year. That they have so many good things uh, going for them right now. And I think that's uh, again we were talking a little earlier about uh, Danny Ricardo's lukewarm start to, to the season, Sergio Perez as well. Yeah, it's you know I I don't want to hate on him too much because I. I, like I think I, I think he's maybe just trying a little bit too, too hard I mean he's obviously there and he knows he's got a good car and and last weekend was a bit of a it's a bit of a hard one to really put a lot of judgment on and just because the conditions were so tricky and so many people uh, put it off the track at, uh, at one point or another but it was just uh, it, it was it worked out really I think I don't want to say worst case scenario because they still won the uh, won the race, but it was just unfortunate for for Red Bull just in the constructors' championship point uh, or side because uh, Perez finished in, what, P11 or something like that. So he just he didn't even collect a single point. And you know that maybe he might not have been on the podium in that race, but if he was top five, then that would have kind of kind of closed uh, things up. And as we talked about uh, after the race, that, uh, you know, th- this might be one of those, uh, it has the potential, let's put it th- that way, that it might be one of those races that, that they come to kind of rue and kind of shake Absolutely. their fist at at the end of the year. But uh, anyways, we'll wait and see. But yeah, I mean, just to going back to the whole uh, thing that they're going to have their own engines and uh, they're going to be an outright uh, manufacturer, I think it's exciting. I'd, I'd love to be in the, the production facility right now, just to see built up from uh, basically from, from nothing into the state-of-the-art uh, facility. I mean, it's it's pretty cool. I mean, there's going to be obviously some overlap uh, between the current situation to the new one, and it's not going to happen uh, overnight. But I don't know, things like that, uh, I, I find it's, uh, it, it's pretty exciting. And uh, I, I think it's good too, because I mean, it's it's also a good sign that they're committed to the sport uh, for the long term as well. And uh, another, another thing that uh, I was just thinking about uh, too was uh, Max Verstappen, how he was uh, just... Uh, looking back and reflecting about how good his start was at Imola on the weekend. I mean, he started in the second year, and I mean, he had tons of grip. I mean, he uh, was able to uh, take it to Lewis right from the very start. And of course, uh, the two of them had a little bit of RG bargy going into that uh, first corner at the chicane there at the end of Tamburello. But it uh, it was quite something. I mean, if you looked at the, or you go back and you look at the uh, the, the replay from the, the the race start, you look at poor old Sergio Perez, I mean, he's got a lot of wheel spin there just fighting for grip, uh, but Max just, uh, he leapt off the uh, the start line there.
1: That was absolutely a great start. And really, that's where it all started going sideways for Perez, right? Like, he, hmm. he was so great on Saturday. And again, I, I commented on this last weekend, which was I was excited coming out of qualifying because I, I was thinking Red Bull's cracked it, right? They, if the past couple of years you've had this premier 1A driver in Verstappen, but you've struggled to pair him with anybody that could put you in contention for a Constructors' Championship. And after qualifying, you had Perez ahead of Verstappen, and I was so excited, but I was ultimately hugely let down at that start where Verstappen quickly slips ahead of both lewis and and uh perez and really his race just went sideways from there and to your point as well ultimately finishing out of the points is something that they'll probably rue the only saving grace ultimately for red bull during that race was botas as well ultimately finished out of the points i i just want to add as well i have never driven a formula one car I, I have no idea what it's like i i know based on everything that i've heard it's one of the most physically demanding things that a human being can do when partnered mm-hmm. with machinery um ultimately the work that the drivers do to stay in shape to be able to drive these cars is absolutely absurd but driving one of these cars in the rain is something that requires tremendous skill like let's be honest these cars don't have traction control they're not all-wheel drive they don't have limited slip differentials that can shift the torque from the front to the back to to compensate for a lack of grip in the wet when it comes to driving these cars in the wet it's all driver it's it's all driver and you have to consider as well that not only is it incredibly difficult to keep these cars on the track keep the heat in the tires from a visibility perspective they can see nothing right like the only thing between them and the track is their visor and their visor is covered in slimy greasy oily water from the track it's incredibly incredibly difficult but ultimately Verstappen won that race based on his start and Perez Prez lost the weekend based on on his start. And to your point as well, I've just I, I'm I'm still cautiously optimistic that he's gonna have a good year. I think he's probably nervous. It's the best car he's ever been paired with. But ultimately, I don't think there's any chance of him retaining this seat after this year if he continues to put up performances like this and cost this team. The opportunity to chase a constructor's championship. You
0: know, it'd be so frustrating for Christian Horner thinking, "Okay, yes. I've got a guy that you know he's he's better than the other drivers that, that we've had in the in, in the past, but he's just not able to do it consistently." And then uh, you know you've got uh, Pierre Gasly again at uh, at AlphaTauri, who's been pretty solid in his return since being demoted to to go back uh, for, to that team from Red Bull. He <laughs> kind you're, of really if you're
1: Red Bull right now. You can't win, right? You know, <laughs> Gasly, who's one of your internally developed drivers. Doesn't work out, you demote him. You promote Albon. He doesn't work out. He leaves, or he's he's pushed out of that seat. You do something that you never do, which is sign an outside driver. He underperforms. Like they just can't win with that second driver right now. <laughs> yeah,
0: it's almost like a bit of a curse to be that uh, exactly. you know, Red Bull exactly. driver number two. It's just a, <laughs> whoever it is can't really uh, can't really win. Hey Mark, just a couple more stories as we start to to wind it down here. Uh, just uh, we we talked about it and hinted at it a little bit uh, earlier on, but uh, Will. Williams, they had uh, what was a really good uh, weekend. Got both cars into Q two. Sadly, both of them crashed out uh, during the race. Uh, Nick Latifi, he did go on to say that he didn't actually realize that uh, 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 what's uh, Mazepin. Mazepin. Sorry, yeah, was there when he uh, tagged him. And you know, I've completely flip flopped on that uh, to to put most of that on uh, on uh, Latifi, but also then the crash of George Russell. But it was disappointing because uh, they were looking so good, and I mean, compared to what we're used to, obviously getting both cars into q2 like i said and they were looking decent-ish during the race i mean russell was running well in the points until he had his accident and it's just uh it's got to be frustrating for them but hopefully if you're uh, you're williams that uh, you've seen something there that maybe finally maybe you've turned the corner and you're you're starting to dig yourself out of this really deep dark nasty hole that you've been stuck in with little hope over the past several years
1: I completely agree. And I think it's frustrating for a couple of reasons. One, because there was so much hope going into Sunday. The fact that you had both drivers going to Q2. The fact that Latifi actually outperformed George Russell in Q1 for the first time ever, I think that was a bit of a breakthrough for Latifi. Yeah, that was awesome. For his confidence. Everything looked really great. And if they'd gone into the race weekend and they brought both of the cars home and maybe they'd scored a couple of points, the weekend would have been perfect. But the challenge for this team is not only do they score no points, not only do they DNF both cars, but to our earlier point, they pick up massive repair bills for both of those cars. And this isn't one of those teams that's in a position where they can continue to cut checks simply because they don't have the revenue streams that some of these bigger teams have. So it was... It was really a heartbreaking weekend because emotionally you're on such a high going into the race Sunday and then everything went wrong on the race day. And not only do you DNF both those cars, but you pick up those big repair bills as well. (laughs) Hopefully, hopefully this team can still build on this weekend, right? Ultimately, Sunday wasn't successful. The Grand Prix itself didn't play out the way I think they would have liked to have. But hopefully they can build on the qualifying that that's something they can point to. Like, look, we had both the cars in Q2. Latifi out-qualified russell in q1 hopefully that's something they can build on going into portugal
0: yeah and i mean if it doesn't race before that start of that grand prix who knows what happens when, exactly. the, when the
1: track is uh, dry i
0: mean I think that uh, you know if you're at Williams be it uh, you know the team principal down to the guy that uh, you know that uh, that's running the cafeteria and stocking the coffee and everything like that I think you have to take positives where you can find it because you don't often get a wet race in formula 1 we we get a couple every year and it was just that after so many good things had happened prior to that it just had um, you know a really negative outcome that wasn't it was all out of their control, basically. I mean, Nick did the best to get the car back on the track, and then he was just struggling to get, you know, keep the grip. And, you know, he's uh, he said it was like a nightmare out there with some of the worst conditions. Probably, I think he said it was the worst conditions he'd ever driven a race car in, wasn't it? So... Yeah and then uh, you know uh, of course George's uh, big uh, big crash there I mean th- those were both circumstances that were out of basically everybody's hands I mean uh, it was out of Nick's hand I mean he had cold tires he's on a greasy track George lost it on the on the on the getting one uh, wheel or a couple of wheels on the grass and it just a couple of like basically an eye you know blink of an eye uh, for for both drivers that uh, ruined their weekend, but I think you just got to take positives where you can take it, and there's just just try and build some momentum because I mean it's been painful to watch them. I mean not just at the back of the grid, but so fundamentally slower than the next slowest car in front of them for the past couple of years, and I think you just uh, just take what you can and just uh, move forward.
1: You know. It- I think it's useful for our listeners, especially the newer listeners, to understand that while they really haven't been successful during this era, and that's actually a dangerous comment because if you flash back to 2014, the first year of the Turbo Hybrid era, they were fourth in the Constructors' Championship. Yeah, exactly, right. I I think that probably, in hindsight, had less to do with their own development, but rather the fact that so many of the other teams were behind in development of that chassis. But that said, they scored a few podiums in 50, and they scored podiums in 16. In 2017, they scored a podium with Nicholas Nicholas Latifi with Lance Stroll and Baku, but they haven't even been close since. 2018, they completely cratered. Uh, 2019 was a devastating year. 2020 was a devastating year. I just, I hope that they can continue to build on that qualifying session. I think what's really important for this team this year is they have to score some points. You cannot go three championship seasons in Formula One without scoring any points. But it is important to recognize that back in the 80s and 90s, the 90s especially, this was absolutely a premier team in Formula One. They were winning constructors championships. They were winning drivers titles and for our Canadian listeners the sole Canadian to have won a F1 drivers title was Jacques Villeneuve with with Williams back in 1997.
0: A funny story here, just uh, before we wrap it up with the final story, I actually met Jacques Villeneuve. Really? Yes, yeah, in a a Soyuz, uh, which is a a small town in the uh, Okanagan, uh, in the interior of British Columbia. This is going back to about 2012, 2013. Anyways, we we vacation up there quite frequently uh, during the summers, and uh, we were at uh, this resort there. Yeah, Humble Brag. And (laughs) uh, we were just just, uh, visiting, and we were just, um, we went into this uh, one resort that, we were just uh, went up uh, we were just we were at and we noticed that there was something going on there was like a bunch of police cars and some fire trucks and things like that and you know you know having little kids you know anytime you see police cars and fire trucks and firemen and stuff like that it's like a magnet right so we go and then we see I look inside and I see like a couple of go-karts walk in and all of a sudden I see this big tall really big guy and uh, this big guy turned out to be Gino Ojick. so if you're a Vancouver Canucks fan everybody knows who's, who's Gino is you know, very famous player for the Canucks. Anyways, he's talking to this smaller slight guy, kind of thinning on top, got little round spectacles on. And I'm like, well, I'll be damned if that isn't Gino Ojic and Jacques Villeneuve. So I went over and talked to Jacques and you know they, they were signing autographs and everything like that. And they were both really awesome with, with, with the kids. And it was it was just, you know, I I never expected, you know, on a family vacation to what, run into a Formula One driver, a former Formula One driver, let alone a Formula a former world champion so that was uh, and, and I, cool. I don't think
1: I need to tell you this but uh, there is a new motorsport park uh, just north of Oliver north of Soyuz where that's you right. were called Area 27 yeah. which was designed by Jacques Villeneuve and perhaps that was the reason he was up there was he was scoping out the geography for his new track
0: he could have been it, uh, that's uh, really quite uh, possible yeah it was, it was really cool it was a really neat uh, neat moment so finally Mark we get to the, uh, the end of the show and where to wrap it up but uh, you know m- my little team Teaser right off the very beginning. It wasn't necessarily the premier story of the entire show, but I thought it was funny. It was just the the whole saga that poor old Kimi Räikkönen had to uh, put up with uh, with this uh, you know during the, the the race last weekend. So he was uh, pushed out of the points uh, you know because of all of this. Anyways, it all had to do with the you know the red flag and then all this uh, you know this standing start and stuff like that. But anyways, uh, before the the restart, Kimmy he spun at turn three. He lost several places, and then this is where it really gets to get really confusing. We, we tried to figure this out. We, we talked about it, uh, you know, after, after the race. And uh, anyway, so he was able and entitled to retake his position before he got to the first safety line, or, sorry, safety car line. Uh, the team got on the radio, told him to stay where he was, and uh, then at, at that point, he was actually supposed to, and then was obligated to restart from the pit lane. So they weren't really all that clear as to what was going on. So they got on the radio, race radio to Michael Massey, who's the, the the race director. They got no response for him. And then after the race, even the stewards said that the the, the rules are unclear and they contradict each other. And uh, they said, but that notwithstanding, you still have to have a 10-second stop go <laughs> penalty apply. Line for breaking the rules, so since it was issued after the race, it became a thirty-second time penalty for for Kimi, and uh, that dropped them from P nine all the way down to P thirteen. And uh you know, it, it's I can't do anything except to shake my head, and I can't imagine how frustrated Kimi Raikkonen must be feeling about Can you help
1: understand what happened here? So, to, I to wish go, I could. I, I, I can't. can't. I want to, but I can't. I can't wrap my head around this. So there was a crash. And the, ra- the race was temporarily red flagged. Yeah. And typically, if a race is red flagged, you go back and you have another grid start. But they decided that they were going to have a rolling start. Mm-hmm. At some point, Kimi spun out before yes. the rolling starts. He didn't retake the position that he had before the spin. And then somehow he ended up being penalized. Like, I cannot, I can't wrap my head around this. And then the sport just <laughs> steps in and changes the rule to make sure it doesn't happen. Like mid season, it's very, very, very odd.
0: Yeah. They go and change, you know, they admit that their own rules don't make sense. But hey, you know, uh, we're, we're going to give you a penalty. And it used to be if you'd served it during the race, it was ten second. But But because we're applying it after the race, we're going to hit you with 30 second penalty and we're going to drop you out of the points.
1: It's crazy. And, uh, you
0: know, d- don't, don't complain about it because that's just the way it is. You
1: know, it's the, the just sports <laughs> got to be really careful with stuff like this, right? Like if you're if you're catering now to millions, potentially millions of new fans, you yeah. can't you can't come across as being so arbitrary. Like in the first it's race, you talked so it's much Bush about League. track limits. Yeah. Like, well, Mercedes clearly neglected any concept of track limits for the first two-thirds of that race, and then ultimately track limits became an issue with other drivers towards the end of the race, and then, yeah, like, the sport's got to demonstrate a greater sense of consistency, and even just the look of, hey, we're just going to change rules midway through a season so that a rule that was in effect for this race no longer (laughs) applies to the next race. It's it's confusing for the drivers and the teams and the fans, but the arbitrary nature of some of the calls is, is really problematic and i'm sure you saw the memes as well like i saw a video on i think reddit or somewhere that showed the frequency with which mercedes were flagrantly flagrantly ignoring track limits for the first two thirds of that race at to begin the season like yeah it's, it's just dangerous like you have all these new fans you need to show them that you know how to manage and officiate the sport
0: yeah, I- exactly right, and I think that's why that uh, that that uh, Bahrain Grand Prix was so ironic that the, totally. the the defining moment came down to that turn four and Max exceeding the track limits by by obviously quite a large margin, and then you know he had to give the position back, which was the right thing to do. I mean, he was he he gained an advantage by exceeding the track limits, and of course, you know, he had to he did the right thing, even though it uh, it must have really been painful for him. But it, it's like you say, I mean, you had the, the Mercedes guys exceeding the track. Limits there for so, uh, you know, so long during the race. And, uh, the, you know, they, they said that, uh, okay, this is where the track limits are going to be before the race started or the, the week or the weekend started, but they just didn't enforce it. It's just like, you know, an apple is an apple is an apple. It either yeah. is or it isn't. You know, you just can't decide halfway through a, a race that okay, well, we we're gonna have track limits at turn four, but okay, well, these guys have been doing it, and now it's not. You know, it, it they either exceeding track limits or it's not, or it's like this whole BS with Kimi Raikkonen and all, all this sort of uh, like you say the arbitrary application of rules. It's just it, it's maddening. I, I just read that whole summation in the online, and I just like you know, I, I can't even get my mind around this. I'm not even going to try and understand the logic. I'm, I'm just going to laugh as loud and as ironically and sarcastically and <laughs> disparagingly as I can and just kind of move on with my life because this deserves absolutely no attention. But like you say, I mean, if they don't, I mean, they risk turning people off because it just it, it looks garbage. It looks like, uh, you know, Bush League stuff and they, they have to do better.
1: And I don't I don't fault the drivers, right? If, no. if I'm a driver and I'm fighting for position and my my job's on the line and I'm fighting for points and, and I'm fighting for a contract, I will push the track limits as far as I can. And if I sense that the race stewards and the officials aren't going to call me, I'm going to push them as far as I can. And for the better part of that race, they weren't calling them. And I don't fault the Mercedes drivers for no, flagrantly calling flagrantly throwing that back in the face of the of the sport. But ultimately, it's the responsibility of the sport to step in and officiate track limits as it is all of the rules in the sport.
0: You know, when when going back to Bahrain now, I mean, not to to drag it too much uh, uh, out any further, but it it may have happened rather innocently and benignly in that race. Maybe Lewis exceeded the track limits a couple of times, or maybe Valtteri did, or maybe they both did. And maybe somebody on the, you know, on the pit walls looking as like, hey, guys, you know, uh, both of you exceeded the track limits, but they're not saying anything about it. So, you know, why not push it a little bit until we get to, we we get a message from Race, uh, you know, from the race director saying, "Hey, you guys you got to cooler or else you're going to get a black and white flag, you're going to have your times deleted or something like that." I mean, if they're not going to enforce it, why not try and gain an advantage? I mean, it's 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 a gray area. I mean, it it kind of is cheating, but if they're not going to enforce it, they're turning a blind eye to it. Is it cheating? I don't know. It's and, and that's where it is. That's why I say you either have these rules and enforce it. it it's either when it comes to, and, and we, we talked about it too, about the unlapping of cars and all that, uh, but also like uh, for, for Kimmy where he had to regain his position or the pit lane start or not, or the track limits. It's like you either, you, you have rules there
1: for a reason and you either enforce them or you don't, right? One of the things that's always driven me crazy about baseball, for instance, is the umpires demand so much of the influence over a specific game, right? Like, you know, at the beginning of a game, look, the umpire isn't going to be calling things on the outside corner of the plate. And ultimately, it's a strike. But for whatever reason, that umpire has made the decision that he's just not going to call those. Or he's not going to call anything inside. But ultimately, it influences the outcome of the game, right? Like, you need to have tactically, strategically, called officiating. And you can't have a race where the stewards just decide, hey, you know what, Uh, we're just not going to enforce track limits today, but we are going to enforce them next race. Because it, it helps to create this perception of I don't want to suggest favoritism, but it just ultimately creates this perception of a lack of professionalism. And like I said, one of the things I hated about baseball was ultimately that pitcher could be throwing strikes, but the umpires just decided arbitrarily, I'm just not going to call those as strikes today. I'm going to call those strikes as balls. Mm -hmm. And I don't like to see that in Formula One. And they should have been calling Mercedes on it earlier in the race. They didn't. And I don't blame Hamilton and I don't blame Bottas because I'm going to be looking for every single possible advantage that I can in an effort to win that race. So I don't blame them, but I certainly blame the sport for not doing a better job of officiating the track limits.
0: Well, you know, certainly like I think we all can relate to when we were at school, you walk in one day, the teacher's sick, you got to substitute teacher and every oh, kid's push mentality. push it as far as you can. Push those limits and see how far, how much you're going to get away with because you know that, uh, you know, a, a day or so later, the teacher's going to be back and uh, the things are going to be back to the way that they always were. You're going to try and push limits as, uh, as much as you can. And on that mo- note, Mark, I think we've pushed the, the limits as far as we absolutely can for another week I, I'm i good I'm ready to wrap it up I'm ready to, to draw a line under this show and just uh, get ready I mean this time next week we're going to be talking about the Portuguese Grand Prix I'm looking fa- yeah. forward going back to Portimao I think that was uh, one of the uh, really uh, uh, pleasant surprises of last year it's really cool uh, very much like Imola to see it back on the schedule for this uh, year so really looking forward to it so thank you my friend always a good time always uh, glad to talk uh, Formula 1 with you and glad to have all of you on board uh, listening and watching the show again this week and if you want to get in touch with us, by also by all means do so. Send us an email at scooteryaf1pod at gmail.com or on Twitter at scooteryaf1 pod. And that's it. That's a wrap. And if you want to support us, please do so. Go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, enjoy your podcast, and leave us a, a rating review. It really helps us grow the show, and we'd very much appreciate it. And we love the support. And that's it. Take care. Have a great weekend. We'll be back very, very soon. And that's it. Bye for now.